Welcome into Debate Night. We are back with another episode. We've got one new face today to the show, uh, and we've got a whole bunch of new topics. Um, so without further ado, let's let's get into our analysts today. We've got Brody, we've got Hunter, and then we've got a new guest, Robbie C., and then rounding out the group is one of our returning champions, Dustin. Uh, should be a very good group today. Uh, Are we able to say something at the top of the hour for the intro? Is that a thing? I, I just have something to say. I don't know. Like when I you mean, say, introduced now, now me, I had. Now that you've just barged in, I guess go for it. What do you have? Well, to say? I had. Well, I, I just want to let everyone know I've been on a calorie deficit the last two episodes. A, a massive calorie deficit. I'm in a, a maintained week. So oh. I'm no longer eating 2,300 calories. I'm now eating over 3,000 calories. The, wow. bra- the brain is feeling fresh and ready to go. Hey, at, at least this is better than freaking Hunter's shoulder excuse. So I'm not sure. We'll, the, the, we'll the shoulder's feeling better. Uh, okay. Thank you for checking in on me. I do have a pulled muscle in my back, but I don't okay. think I'm going to hold me back too bad. We'll see that what happens. technicality will be there when you need it. I got it. All right. Okay, I'm just well, bad. <laughs> I'll keep all this in mind as I as I score points. I, I feel like the brain power thing, that's that's legit. Um, all right, well, let's hop right into our first subject today. Uh, this is this has been a hot topic, uh, very controversial, um, at least between the foundation uh, following and and everybody else, it seems. Uh, the Pro Tour announced that they are taking that stretch of the European schedule that Paul was playing, and they're turning it into, not only are they bringing cameras over, but the real hot topic is that they're making them Silver Series events. Um, At the time they did this, it seemed a little bit of a uh, coincidence, perhaps. Um, A lot of the events were already full, so other players were not given the heads up. Um, It was just a little bit shady. Um, So are the DGPT's European exploits a coincidence, and was the timing of their announcement fair to the players? Brody, lead off for us. You know, I think, <laughs> uh, okay, so this is one where it's kind of like you got to give got to give a little bit of information and not all the information, unfortunately, but I'll say this. Now that I have all the information from myself, I think ultimately the Disc Golf Pro Tour wasn't trying to do anything shady. It just wasn't maybe executed properly. It could have been executed better. I think they did see success last year at the Sula Open with that being a silver event, now being an elite event. I think they saw success in the European Open uh, as well and wanted to extend the tour over there. I think the execution with the timing of everything was done poorly. And it was one of those where we don't really see the Disc Golf Pro Tour rush into anything. They have seen with Jeff Spring to be very methodic about uh, you know these new things coming out. And unfortunately, it just seemed like they rushed this one and you know the conspiracy theories started flying. Yeah, okay. So Brody not completely con- convinced of anything nefarious. Hunter, what do you think? I mean, I think it was somewhat coincidental but definitely not fully um, my personal opinion on this now that i've heard information and read the ultimate article and all that is that the pro tour was planning on this happening in the future and i think their original plan was like all right let's take sula let's make it an elite series event let's see kind of how this goes maybe in the future we can make all the euro tour silver series then they heard about paul's schedule it sounds like sometime in december according to ulti world and we're like oh hey we're kind of thinking about going there it would be very beneficial for us to go ahead and make that jump make that leap um the timing of it was suspect, to say the least. I don't think it was fair to players, as Kona Day was already full at the time of the announcement, with a wait list already developing. With that being said, though, I don't think it really is going to affect many players, because I don't think it, 
many, if any, players would have changed their current schedule to go over there had they been giving a heads up. Still wasn't quite the right thing to do. You would have liked at least Ulibarri, who's the head of the Players Association, to have known before the disc golf hour with Brody Smith when he found out live on air. <laughs> yeah, certainly something to be said about that. Uh, Robbie, what are you thinking about this whole European tour thing? Yeah, so... I'm going to take an opposite stance and say that I, I think that the Disc Golf Pro Tour is really trying to capitalize on this monetarily as much as they can. You can't tell me that the that Knight Heinold is not getting a call from Discraft saying, hey, our boy's heading over there. Let's uh, We can make something happen because we know he's going to smash these events. When you look at the fields that Paul is in, he is projected to win by, if we're looking at ratings alone on like what we're expecting players to do, Paul has a stroke and a half lead on all of his competition. None of the American players that are getting over there. We have Scott Stokely and Nate Perkins being some of the only ones that are showing up like in regular fields. So I think Paul's going to take a massive advantage of this. And I fully believe that Discraft was doing everything they can to jump over there and take advantage of this opportunity. Yeah, it certainly looks like Paul's set up to, to have some success over there. Dustin, what are your thoughts? So on the Macbeth front, I think he had plenty of incentive to go over to just expand his brand and possibly look at projects for his foundation and so forth, and he could afford to take the points hit. So I don't really see anything shady about his end of this thing. As far as the pro tours in, Jeff Spring stated that Macbeth didn't know about the announcement and that he wasn't a factor in their timeline, and I'll take his word for it because there's no real evidence otherwise and because the facts do seem to line up for me. Of course, the pro tour wants to expand to Europe as quickly as possible. Spring stated in the interview with the Upshot podcast that he, they wanted to do this back in 2020 but couldn't due to COVID, and the PGA Euro Tour didn't even operate in 2021, so that option wasn't even on the table. Expanding into Europe as soon as possible, of course, allows the tour to grow their brand and influence, expand to a new audience, as well as tap into you know more players from the European side of things. We already saw signs of this last year at the PCS Open, as well as the Disc Golf Network airing the European Open, so it's not only going to help the Pro Tour, but also give European players more options to be a part of the tour, as well as just let them see that touring in general is an option. Now, was the timing fair for all players? No, I agree it wasn't ideal. It needed to come sooner. But we don't know what was going on behind the scenes that may have slowed this thing down, that they were trying to get past to get this out the door. And the point is, it can benefit European players immediately. So you might as well get it out, and it's geared more towards European players anyway, in my opinion. And on a side note, kind of as Hunter was saying... Most players don't have the same luxury as Macbeth passing up on elite events to take an extended European tour. So I just don't think it harms them that much anyway. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say, you know, everybody kind of has their own take there. I think it's fair to say no matter what happened, the timing of the announcement was poor because it was it was bound to stir up what it did stir up. Um, it, it just looked a little fishy. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the fact pattern that at least is out there to the public certainly, you know, tells one story. So. I don't know. At the very least, it's exciting to have some European coverage. Hopefully that turns out well, and, and we'll kind of see what happens with that. Um, but before we get to any of those European events, we've got the first event of the season coming up on us quick, and it's not a you know major event by any means. A lot of people have kind of overlooked this event. Uh, it's kind of a theme in pro sports, actually, to overlook this event, but the All-Star event is coming up soon. Um They've tampered around, messed with the, the format of this event, you know, as it's kind of existed for the last few years, trying to draw interest desperately. It's like I said, it's a struggle with a lot of sports. Um, so my question is, should the Pro Tour bother running an all-star event at all? Um, and if so, what should it what should be done to increase interest in this event? Hunter, what do you think? 
I mean, uh, they absolutely should bother running an all-star event. I think an all-star event is great for the sport. It can be great for the growth of the sport. Um, but in my opinion, I think it should be towards the middle or end of the year. I don't like it being, you know, right off the gate, you jump into the all-star event. I think that's what's kind of causing everyone's focus is on Vegas. And you have this all-star event in the middle. Whereas like if we were in the flow of the event, we let all-stars develop throughout the year. You could capitalize on some of the like one hit wonder storylines throughout the year throw them into the all-star event. I also think it should be less about stroke play and more about putting players in a scenario they can show off. So throw them into some type of collegiate doubles format or match play or Stableford or something to encourage aggressive play and then have fan votes on, you know, who they want in the putting distance and skills game. Um, my personal choice for this would be make it a part of the tour championship week, put it at the very beginning of the tour championship week. You have the best players down there. You already have a gallery forming, getting ready for tour championship, have it down there start off the tour championship week with that and then go into the tour championship end of the season with a bang that way. That's how I would personally do it, but they definitely should continue to develop and, and figure it out. Yeah. The timing of the event is certainly something that would be, um, would be worthwhile messing around with Robbie. All your, your, uh, your thoughts on the all-star event. Do you think they should keep running it? Yeah, I agree. I think that if you're a major sport, you have to have an all-star event. We need to be able to show off our players outside of their regular disc golf context. And I want to agree with Hunter. I think that's where the the event is already struggling is because we aren't doing anything extraordinary. We don't want to gather people and see them do the same thing that they're doing week after week. We either got to make this not just a cheesy show of skill and, oh, look, they scored well on another course. Surprise. They're touring pros. That's what they're supposed to do. We either need to make it grand and let them showcase major distance competitions, silly putting competitions, and we can make things ridiculous as well. People would enjoy watching pros sit around from a chair and see if they can make putts because we know that we can't do it and that's stuff that we see in local putting leagues let's see the pros either experience some craziness or let's see them just do something different or my favorite is the idea let's add let's put some skin to the game we look at the mlb game where if the national league wins they get to host the event what if players had the chance to whatever winning team gets it the mvp of that team gets to choose one silver series to be promoted and one elite series to be demoted because of that opportunity i think that would bring tons of interest to the game <laughs> That, that would certainly be an interesting <laughs> twist. Yeah, we actually saw for a while there, Major League Baseball, I believe the rule, this part of the rule is gone, but Major League Baseball for a while there was letting uh, home field advantage in the in the World Series, I think, was going to the All-Star Game winner. So it really raised the stakes. Uh, not sure about all that, but I, I do like the idea of uh, the Silver Series thing. Uh, Dustin, what do, you, what do you think about it? So first off, I'll disagree that it should impact the actual tour in any way. It's supposed to be a fun showcase for fans and players, and so I don't like that impacting the actual competitive integrity of the tour. Um, I do think that they need to find a way to find players to participate, to incentivize them, to make it worth their while. I think one way to go about it is by changing the scheduling so it doesn't take place during the preseason when people are focused on trying to get competitive for the opening event, as well as avoiding early injury. You know, like, we got to think about the wear and tear throughout the course of the season. You don't want them starting off this way and risking it. Uh, also, you need to just make it an option where maybe it's like more of a vacation, so more of a mid-season break or more of just something fun in the postseason. Make it more luxurious for the players. Hell, if you need to, maybe even do appearance fees just to make sure you get the top talent there uh, just because that's what people want to see. Um, you know, also covering accommodations and all that jazz. Again, you need to make it attractive for the players. Uh, also, you can increase interest for players, which is better formats, more skills competitions, maybe some match play in a way that's not controversial because it's a part of an all-star event and not part of actually points on the tour. Um, we're sick of seeing the same format, so we don't need to see that also in an all-star event. 
Uh, we want to see the players having fun. We want to learn more about them, tap into them. Uh, you know, basically just beef the whole thing up and, and make it fun for everybody so that the players want to be there and that the fans want to watch so they're not seeing just, you know, something j- just kind of stuck in there. Yeah, I think there's some good points there. Brody, as a potential all-star, what's enticing you to get to this event? What do you think about it? Well, real quick, Hunter, I think the timing needs to be more in the middle of the season at the end because you already have a jam-packed end of the season with two majors and the playoff events. Uh, Robbie, that was a ridiculous take about being able to impact (laughs) just what tournaments go up and what tournaments go down. I'm sure the sponsors would absolutely love that. And then uh, Dusty, for the actual all-star event, a lot of things you said actually do already occur. Appearance fees, then paying for stuff. They do a lot of stuff to already incentivize players to come out there. I'll say this. I think the Disc Golf Pro Tour, when it comes to like an event outside of actually just the normal stroke play event, if you're going to do something uh, different, you're going to need a team to focus on that event to make it something special. We saw last year what they did. They just kind of threw – uh, string up and was like throw it over the string so nothing cool there the putting event wasn't that cool the uh the long distance thing they didn't have lines showing us how far the discs were traveling it was just on a random fairway and having them thrown i think they'd much be better off to switch to something that isn't so extremely different from what they already do and do some sort of doubles tournament like an actual tournament during the season where you get players get to pick their doubles partner. Uh, it can be mixed. It can be open, whatever they want to do. And they play in a tournament or do in another event where it's USA versus the world, similar to like the Ryder Cup kind of style. Make these events that are a little bit closer to what they already do and make them really, really well done instead of trying to figure out how to do a really good all-star event. Yeah, so definitely um, a lot of different points to bring up surrounding the All-Star game. I think some people do think there needs to be skin in the game in order for players to care. But then it also is like, should we just really make this feel exclusive and like a nice luxury vacation almost for the players? Should that be the incentive? Um, You know, roll out the red carpet, make it more of a highlight than just kind of a normal broadcast that it is now. Um, But Robbie, if you're willing to double down on that point of there being skin involved in the game, I'll throw you and Brody into a duel real quick and uh you can start us off what do you think yeah so i think in terms of skin of the game we talked about it in previous episodes previous podcasts we hear talked about all the time the players aren't looking for the money necessarily an appearance fee would have to be pretty high especially for top level talent to be there the mcbeths the wysakis of the world the now lazats are making an obscene amount of money so it's getting them to the event not necessarily going to work Having the opportunity to influence the tour, influencing players, I think not only does that make you want to grow your brand in terms of having a chance to get to the all-star event, but players are going to care during that event. I think it would allow you to have a more serious event that you may can throw some goofy things in. And I'm not saying that the whole team gets to vote. I think even then you get to see true all-star moments. You get to really try to push and show your standing by being voted the MVP of the event, that's the player that gets to do that, which also encourages sponsors of those events to make sure that they're trying to get their players to the event to influence it, which is going to bring even more eyes to the event, even more focus to the event. And I don't I don't know how you get players to not buy in by being a person to say like, oh, I play really poor at Idlewild. Let's get that down to a Silver Series and <laughs> I crush this Silver Series and bada boom, bada bing, because I can throw 7,000 feet you know, I'm in it. <laughs> All right, Brody, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I just don't think 
I just don't think for the pro tour they're they're gonna want that to you know the the idea of what tournament is getting elevated and what tournament's getting thrown down to be someone that threw for the farthest in the distance competition at the All Star event. But I will say I do agree with Robbie in the sense that you for for these events to really work you need to have the best players there. You know when you're looking at the NBA All Star, uh, that's the easiest one that comes to my mind to like judge of whether it is successful or not is like the dunk contest, right? Like there are so many players that just refuse to do the dunk contest because, uh, you know, the way that the, it was done, I guess. And also at the end of the day, like people just don't really want to do something that's going to maybe embarrass them, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and the dunk contest, I think when everyone's saying like, you should do it, you should do it. And then you go out there and you don't win it. It can be like a little bit disheartening, I guess. But I agree with Riley. We need to have the best players there for it to be the best event. And it's just trying to figure out if you want to stick with the all-star event, what can you do that's actually going to get people motivated and excited to watch and then want them to win. (laughs) It's skin in the game. I, I think there's a fine line because, you know, if you want the event to take on a more, because you want it to take on a more fun, goofy, like show off type thing. I think then you, you really can't have skin in the game. It's a little too gimmicky for my my taste. Um, but then, you know, if you go the other way, then it's like, well, is this just an event at this point? There's a lot of, you know, there'd be a lot of logistical issues with the whole demotion and promotion thing. But I, I do agree in the sense that, you know, adding more to the table, you know, the simplest way really would just be making the the money up for grabs, I guess, a little bigger, but you know, that's always, (laughs) that's just always the case in, uh, in disc golf, but you know, good, good points on both sides. I'm going to, I'm going to give Brody the point just because I don't think that the relegation system is, uh, (laughs) is going to work. It would be wild. I mean, the idea, just the idea of throwing out Idlewild getting demoted is just like, imagine like Ledgestone just getting demoted. (laughs) I'm telling you, I mean, that's where the money really comes in is, can you imagine how much these players are hearing and receiving if, uh, (laughs) Hey, by the way, we're running a silver (laughs) series the last two years and we're looking to get that bump. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) It would be, there'd be players. Yeah. There'd be players getting paid a lot bribed to, uh, to vote for them. Um, all right, moving on. So this is a, uh, another topic that has kind of been, um, talked about a little bit recently. Um, it's something that, um, we've seen a few FPO players speak out about, and it has to do with their course design. Um, you know, because both those tours coexist right now, both the MPO and FPO tours, um, a lot of times the FPO course is sort of a second uh, secondary thought. They kind of have to adjust based on what the course has been set up for for the MPO. Um, there's only so much you can do with moving around tee pads and baskets, and this means that a lot of times the FPO courses don't really feel quite suited for their game. Um, that is that you know that's sparked a lot of conversation recently. So the question is, does FPO course design on tour need overhauled, and if so, is there any viable solutions? Robbie, lead us off. Absolutely. So I want to start by looking at the word par. When we look at the word par, par, according to a quick Google search, is going to tell you that par is the amount of strokes needed for an expert to score the hole. That is what we treat golf as. Obviously, that doesn't carry through in disc golf when we look at MPO scores. Looking at the 2022 season with Elite Series and Majors, there was only one event that a player could shoot par in the MPO field and actually hit the cash line. And that was one that one of our guest analysts ended up making the podium with at DDO, which was a massive disaster (laughs) because of the wind, right? So when you go to FPO, there was only one event in the entire season that getting par 
didn't get you cash in the FBO field. And that was the U.S. Women's Championship, which was their most electric event of the year in terms of scoring differential. So I think it needs an overhaul for two reasons. One, it's just not being scored on. As we look at these events, we see, like I said, with all those numbers there, in MPO, there were only three rounds all season where one hole went unbirdied. FBO, there were 33 rounds where at least one hole was unbirdied, six rounds with four or more holes unbirdied, and seven total events where a hole was never birdied. The second is that we want to make this entertaining. No one wants to watch this struggle fest go on and we're having the MPO players play disc golf and we're having the FBO players play golf par and it's just two different sports which doesn't help our sport be entertaining and engaging and more eyes to the view like to viewership is going to help more ladies get interested in the sport which is only going to help things grow more yeah a lot of good points there Dustin does it need an overhaul I'll say this. I don't think it needs an entire overhaul. I do think that there are some courses right now for FPO that are on the tour as is still really entertaining and still work pretty well. I just think that, you know, you do obviously have to make the appropriate changes to tees and pin locations to fit that decision while maintaining the participation at elite level courses that we have come to know and love for years, like as a community. And I think it also still allows FPO players to still play the spirit of the hole, meaning that they have to hit similar lines and gaps as MPO and thus face similar challenges and enjoy the elite course design that we see on some of our stops on the tour. Now, we have had some particular issues with, like, U.S. women's, where at times the courses were, you know, not up the standard. They are either too easy or just not great, just quality-wise. Uh, and, and that's why I feel like the prestige of that major has really kind of gone down. Um, also, they even had too many courses one time where there's no way players could be prepared because there's like three courses for one event or something like that. This is what's caused Throw Pink to have more prestige in more people's eyes due to the quality and character to Winthrop Arena and the prestige with its ties to USDGC. So obviously making Throw Pink a major for women instead of US Women's could definitely be one thing that we look at as well as just maybe looking at how do we set these courses up for women. But the problem is, is that we're seeing disagreement within FPO on what they want. Some claim that courses are too easy, but then we have the whole situation, Evelina Salonen saying that there were players saying that the courses were too hard, that the, the holes were too long. And so how are we ever going to make appropriate change if people aren't even on the same page? Uh, also, you can't really split things up too much between the two tours because of limited resources of the DGPT, of broadcasting and staffing. And also the fact that the tours are combined is what helps push FPO viewership. So that's really a, a chaotic thing you're seeming to mess with. Uh, also, personally, I think we're seeing you know, players be able to throw further, you know, think of people like Ella Hansen coming up and Holland Handley and so on. Like we're seeing more athletic women come into the field and be able to handle the longer distance. So to me, it's just too tough because I feel like we don't have one clear message from FPL on what they want. Yeah, certainly Brody. What are you thinking? Yeah. So I think with FPO, the thing they have most going for them is they're more relatable to the average disc golfer, right? The, the, their style of play as far as distance goes is more relatable. When you watch FPO, you can be like, I throw 350 feet or 400 feet, and you can look at someone else on FPO that's doing the same thing and scoring way better than you and try to figure out what they're doing in their game differently. On the MPO side, that's not necessarily the case a lot of times where guys are throwing 500 feet and you can kind of just be like, oh, well, they're better than me because they throw 500 feet. So the problem is, though, is if you're not utilizing the talent that FPO has because you're limiting the course design, uh, it's, it's much harder to see. You know, when they're playing holes that are 500 feet plus as a par three or even as a par four, the scoring separation in the FPO field is limited. You're either having everyone taking threes and making it a par or everyone taking threes and making it 
uh, a birdie. And also when it comes to like woods, a lot of times like when they play their, you know, 50 or 60 feet in front of where the MPO pad is, the actual difficulty of the hole is just completely taken away. On the MPO side, the hole is difficult because we have to hit a gap for an extended period of time. If the FPO tee pad is set up at the end of the gap, the whole difficulty is gone. Uh, you have to really have someone go out there and design these courses specifically for the distance that the FPO has, design and design like the trouble too. That's the, those are all very important factors. Yeah, certainly, Hunter. Wrap it up for us. What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, everyone's described a lot of the obvious problems, but it, I think what's really tough is everything that everyone said is true, which leads us to this confusing area that we are, because obviously there's a problem. We can all agree, well, actually, we can't all agree, it seems, that the answer is not just to change the par, because, yeah, it seems like what Robbie was saying, where MPO is playing a different sport than FPO, but if you just change the par, it might make the scoring look similar to MPO, but it doesn't do anything to scoring separation, to Brody's point, where if you make a hole that was a par 3, a par 4, the hole's going to average the same thing. So yeah, now some players are birdieing it, but what did that actually do? Nothing. I think the thing that is the toughest about this is the FPO skill gap between the top of the field and the middle of the field is quite large in comparison to the MPO. Um, and this is causing some players, like Dustin was saying, to be like, oh, the courses aren't hard enough. But then the other side of that, the flip side of that coin, players be like, the courses are way too hard. So I think the only solution right now is have courses specifically designed for FPO at tour stops. Don't throw them on the MPO or MA1 layout, which I think is what a lot of people are kind of talking about throughout this. And, you know, Sunset Hills did a great job. I think we got to see more of that. But it is tough at specific tour locations. So it's just a growth thing right now. Yeah, I, I do think that a, a lot of it comes down to growth. You know, you're only going to be able to do it so well. And I think some courses do it better than others uh, in, in capturing the essence of the MPO layout with an M or yeah, the MPO out with an FPO layout. I think um, some do it poorly. Uh, it, it's really just going to it's never going to be perfect until, you know, they're able to play on separate courses or at least have more courses that are designed with the FPO layout and in, in, in involved and hopefully that'll happen as more private courses are created hopefully that'll be something that they think about um, i do want to give a quick points update before we hop into the next topic i realize i forgot that after the last one sorry to our listeners um, right now we have brody at 18 hunter at 17 robbie at 18 and dustin at 18 so right now very very close um, we do have one more topic before we hop into our rapid fire round um, and this one is a topic that has been around for quite a quite a while a lot of people have their opinions on this I, i'm curious to see where everybody kind of sits on this one um but it the the topic is do flight numbers have any real purpose in the current system or should they be eradicated to avoid inaccurate marketing dustin lead off for us so i agree that flight numbers aren't perfect by any means but it feels like the can of worms on that's already open and so taking them away now could just lead to a lot of confusion for consumers on what to look for in a disc because they would no longer have a starting point and i can see that leading to frustration i mean worst case scenario is at least flight numbers give you a place to start especially on the extreme ends of disability um it, it lets you kind of narrow in your search so to speak instead of having to cast a super wide net um i usually think that flight numbers can also be fine within certain manufacturing ecosystems so so like if you're comparing a mold from dynamic to a mold to west side or you know just molds within the innova system against each other it gets dicey though when you try to compare two different ecosystems together that's where the real problems come in now companies can simply look to improve numbers and we've seen mvp actually do that with their fission plastic well they know that that's going to fly a little more understable and so they give that a little bit less of a, of a turn rating so maybe that could be a trend that we see as we know that runs and plastic types and so on can affect how this is going to fly uh the problem 
the, the real solution would be universal flight numbers. I mean, that'd be great. But the problem is, is that that would have to happen from the PGA and their mold approval process. And I could see that being way more trouble than it's worth because manufacturers might get ticked off that they're getting a certain flight number, which might impact their sales or, or give another company an edge over them. And so in the end, I think it comes down to retailers to market and review this properly to hit the right crowd. And it's all manufacturers by being accurate as they can about their disc so they can deliver on expectations and not, you know, deliver something to a, a customer that winds up not being what they thought. I think no matter what, you're not going to have a perfect system. Like if you took numbers away and said, hey, let's do understable and overstable instead. Well, understable and overstable for who? So, yeah, I think that it, 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 unfortunately the can of worms are just open. Brody, flight numbers are certainly something that you're probably the newest to out of the bunch and you've had your thoughts on it in the past. So what do you think? Well, what Dusty has said at the very end of where he has said understable or overstable for who, that's that's the whole reason why flight numbers don't even make sense. Because when you look at a flight number, you might think this is what it's supposed to do for me. And then when you go out and throw it, your arm speed is way different than everyone. Like that, I think the whole thing just needs to get blown up. I think just blow it all up, blow the entire system up and either have the PDGA or a third party company come in and say, we're going to come up with a new system or whatever across the board for all companies. Discs are going to come to us, and we're going to, instead of telling you what the speed of the disc is, we're going to tell you the wind, the, the uh, rim width. Instead of telling you this, we're going to give you, if you throw between this, like, it's just, it's crazy to me to think about, like, someone going and being like, oh, I'm going to buy this disc because the flight numbers are this way, and it's going to fly exactly like this for me. Like the nose angle of how you release, uh, how much you roll your wrist. There's so many factors that come into play of how discs fly differently for uh, different people. Um, and that's the reason why a lot of people on the Pro Tour, you'll see even in the disc craft, we don't all throw the same discs because how we throw is different from others. And so some discs work well for us in certain slots and some don't. Blow the whole system up. Let's redo it and uh, have it really like done to where someone coming brand new into the sport it can actually be done well for them. All right, Hunter, blow it up or keep it? <laughs> you got to keep it. Uh, I think that people get too caught up in the nitty gritty and think of like, this is going to tell me exactly how this is going to fly. It's not. Kind of to Dustin's point, this is going to give you a general idea where I think Dustin missed the mark slightly is A, Westside has the least accurate flight numbers of them all. So you try to compare something to dynamic to Westside, you're just going to get a headache. <laughs> B, Overstable, understable for who? That's what the first number's for. The speed number tells you how fast it just needs to be thrown to act as if the rest of the numbers are true. He was accurate though that Innova, you know, if you stay within Innova, you can tell, you know, where to go from within the Innova ecosystem. Discraft, I would say Trilogy all need to be separated. The problem you're going to run into a lot of times, too, is like Discmania. You know, they're testing in Colorado. You have Prodigy testing down in Georgia. Discs are going to fly at different points. I think it all needs to be regulated. It all needs to be coming from one spot because there is an uh, opportunity out there that is getting hit with pointless marketing hype, like eight glide or could get to 17 speed or the first one speed putter. There's a lot of crap that goes on within flight numbers, but the essence of them have to be a part of the sport. And golf has flight numbers, man. What do you think of seven iron is? So you agree with me? <laughs> All right, hold on, hold on, just a second, Robbie. You agree with me, <laughs> Robbie? Um, before we get back to those two guys, um, you you have to talk about flight numbers a lot. It's kind of part of your channel, you know, instruction. So so, how do you feel about them? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that for beginners in the sport, we need to understand that as the sport continues to grow, we need to have easy access points for beginners to get into the sport. And flight numbers are the easiest way. As someone who also works in a retail shop, the amount of times that someone steps in and they're like, I played around with this person throwing this disc. I want to throw this disc too. Flight numbers actually work as a way for me to explain to them why that disc is not going to work for them. As we work through and we see these inconsistencies, we know Westside's flight numbers are terrible. So because of that, we ignore the numbers on the disc. You can feel a disc in your hand. And this is something I know we've talked about with Brody before that you can pick up a destroyer, compare two side by side and feel them. What we need to do is we need to educate people on how discs fly and use flight numbers as a guide to help shape that conversation. The more that we can lean into educating players, and I think, sure, we can regulate this, but that's not going to happen as long as human beings are throwing the discs. That's the other issue that no one's talking about. We need a machine that can create consistency, create the same release over and over again. Yeah, I, I've been put, saying about put that me and Hunter together. Hunter, Brody. Um, put me and Hunter together. I want Hunter. All right. Give me Hunter. All right. You already had your Brody, duel. Come Brody, on, bro. Well, Dustin, first of all, you, West Side Dish just caught a lot of strays. Do you have anything to say for yourself? All right. Look, I, listen, I understand that there are indeed some modes on West Side that are a little bit inaccurate. <laughs> like, I'm not going to sit here and lie about it. But I think there are plenty of discs in their lineup that are actually accurate. Like, I think the flight numbers for the Destiny are pretty accurate. Same with the Boatman. Same with the Northman. Dang, he's um, got receipts. Same with the Ati. Same with the Stag. Ooh. Same with the Hatchet. I mean, there the are Stag? Yeah, I think the Stag <laughs> oh, like, has, bro. like, a pretty decent flight number for, for how it flies. Same with the Underworld. Close. So, if you, and I maybe mean, for him, all though. of them. There, there are certain ones like the sword that are definitely not as overstable as that they say that they are. So, I think you can go both ways on that one. I think every manufacturer has that issue with at least one or two of their molds. All right, Hunter, Hunter, you go, you go first, and then I'll let Brody kick in. You guys can duel it out a little bit. Yeah, that duel little, it out for last that little place. Golf I guess. Has flight numbers line. I mean, that was shocking. <laughs> That's a terrible line. <laughs> well, no, it does. It's not a terrible line. Let me explain why. So, golf, you look at a, a you look at a club, right? The seven iron. You have a general idea of what that's going to do. You take flight numbers away from a disc, and I hand you a buzz. What the frick's that thing going to do? You have no clue. You have to have flight numbers at the bottom to be able to understand the general idea of what it's going to do. The same thing that the seven, eight, nine pitching wedge that's doing in golf. The reason disc golf has to be so complex is the disc is the ball and the club. So you have to understand how it's going to react, how it's going to fly once it gets out there. And that's why flight numbers are important. You can't blow the whole system up because it's already been developed. People already understand it. You just have to refine it a developed, little bit. I'm saying blow the whole system up and come up with a better system. I'm not saying blow the system up and don't have a system. I'm saying have a better system. I, I want to know this. What is the degree on a seven iron? Hunter, you're asking do you me. care to? Yeah, yeah you golf. said flight numbers. You said seven iron. That's go what's the degree? What's the degree of a seven iron? What's the frick would he know? What's the degree of a seven iron? Matter? I'm not a golfer. It's not on me to know. I pull up a, a degree of a seven iron right can be. Hey, hey, John, what's the, the point? A degree of a seven iron can be between 28 degrees and 35 degrees. If you give me a 28 degree seven iron and a 35 degree seven iron, those two clubs will not go the same distance, Hunter. Those are two okay. different clubs. They're I'll both seven a irons. An One, a twenty-eight right. degree right. is for low, uh, for high. I handicap. love this battle for last place right now. This is glorious. Well, it's just it's a terrible argument because, when, especially we're not even talking about shafts when it comes to the shaft. Like the shaft in a seven iron, also like if you go to Top Golf, the shaft that they put in a seven iron will do things way different for me than if you put in 
a uh, stiff shaft in a seven iron. I think I think Hunter's the, point is yeah. that the seven the on the club the seven? will give you a starting point. It'll say this is where you should start. If I think I have a shot that I want to hit a seven iron, and this is my brand new set of clubs, I'm probably going to start by looking at the one with the seven on it. But so what I'm starting, but my. Yeah, my point is a lot of starting points for these flight numbers, people are buying them thinking they're going to do a certain thing for them. They don't. They don't. Like, there needs to be education. People never buy golf clubs thinking they're going to do something they don't? I have a driver in my bag. I thought I was going to fix my slice. <laughs> All right. All right, both, both <laughs> these guys. All right, we got to move on. You guys, neither of you, uh, neither of you guys are going to the finals. You guys need to go. You guys need your own debate lobby. Right <laughs> Seven now. iron flight numbers was They're like gonna, one of the worst things I've ever I, heard. Honestly, I'm just sick of listening to that. So <laughs> don't gonna, worry, Hunter can just come attend the disc golf hour with Ariel. Ho oh, sorry, Brody Smith, and uh, <laughs> we'll be able to have that conversation over there. <laughs> um, all right, we're gonna, point last points update. Brody and Hunter tied in purgatory at, at 24. Uh, Robbie at 25 and Doug. Dustin at 27. I'll give him a bonus point for the uh, the disc golf hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna move on to our rapid fire round now. Um, and we got we've got three exciting topics here. We're kind of going with a uh, uh, theme that we've done before. Um, Brody and Hunter are gone. Thanks for your participation. Very close battle though. Very close. All right, rapid fire round. We've got Dustin at 27 points, Robbie at 25. Today for rapid fire round, basically what we're doing is we're doing buy, sell, or hold. We're basically, I'm going to be naming a few entities in the sport, whether that be, oh, handshake. Does he reciprocate? He does. I do. Respect. Respect <laughs> to my man. They're going to be naming entities in the sport. You're basically talking about would you buy, sell, and hold them if they were a stock. Uh, you get 30 seconds to make your point. We're going to start um, with Dustin because he is the leader right now. We're going to start buy, sell, or hold stock in the Euro Tour. Dustin, what do you think? I'm going to buy lightly because we're seeing signs of the expansion of the Disc Golf Pro Tour into Europe, which is going to grow the sport there, grow the audience there, and also grow the player base there to give them something more to play for, to give them that incentive to make them feel like it's something that they can legitimately pursue. Um, we're already seeing signs of Euro talent really come out. We got the breakouts from Tatar and Antala from last year. The sport is getting bigger and now we're seeing wider audiences get to learn about the older European names as well, like Bomrus and Salonen, Albert Tam, Vanamakala, and so on. We've even seen new people come out of nowhere, like Jacob Simarad and Knut van der Hollen. So, like, we're seeing the sport grow there, and we're seeing the Pro Tour want to invest there. And so I think we're only going to see more and more European events and European talent come up that we're going to get to enjoy. So I'm going to buy a light here. Robbie, buy, sell, or hold. Uh, first, mad props to Dustin for actually attempting to pronounce half of those names. That was tough. So uh, I would give him a bonus point for that, honestly, in <laughs> itself. There was 547 people who played in the Euro Tour last year. 245 of the people who competed in the Euro Tour didn't earn a single point. I think that the field, we talk about top-heavy versus bottom-heavy. The field is top-heavy in the Euro Tour. And as we've seen with the Europeans actually competing against the Americans, it's still top-heavy, American-favored. I'm holding at best honestly might be selling just because I think best case scenario, we see someone actually compete with Paul during some of this Euro tour focus. Worst case scenario, we just realized that European disc golf is further behind than we think it is. And that all these people that we're seeing who are highlights and stars actually are just flashes in the pan. And when we put real competition and real talent against them, it doesn't work. I think, yeah, I think it's fair to say both. Um, I think one of the big points that I think both of you were kind of talking about the European scene as a whole, but really the 
Euro Tour is just one of um, two main tours over there. So that's kind of where it really comes into play is like, is that tour going to be able to shine? Certainly it has the, the path to do so through the exposure it's about to get. But that exposure, as Robbie mentioned, sometimes can be a bad thing. You know, maybe it shines a light um, on something that that uh, the world is almost like, oh, this is where the game is at, you know, but who knows? It's there's definitely an opportunity either way. Um, all right. Next round, Robbie, you'll go first for this one. Buy, sell or hold stock in Discmania. I am definitely buying in Discmania. I think it's on the cheap right now. And the thing is that losing Simon, I think people think, oh, they lost the offseason. They lost this. We've got the redemption arc in Eagle McMahon coming back this year. That's going to be absolutely massive. Not only that, Discmania has been buying up some low-key, on-the-rise FPO talent that's actually going to, I think, come up and shake up the tour quite a bit with a... um, with Cadence Burge, you have Ratana just got signed to Dismania. So you have so much talent on the upcoming. And people, Dismania is so cheap to buy right now. All it can do is head up on the rise. Dustin, do you agree? I do agree. I'm buying hard on Dismania right now because they are at that low at the loss of Simon Lazat the face of their company, essentially, uh, up until this point. Um, they also lost some smaller names like Dustin Keegan and Nate Perkins, and they only gained Gavin Babcock, really. So, like, they are pretty low right now. But here's the thing. If the rumors are true about that Simon buyout and the fact that they didn't actually spend big this offseason for players, they could go nuclear in 2024 and pick up some really huge names, maybe re-sign Eagle to a big deal to make sure that he stays around. They also have new molds on the way. They got the S-Line Plastic coming out, so now they're going to have more product to sell. Uh, and, and, you know, they they really do have just, I think, the only way to go is up. Uh, so I think you buy low right now and uh, and ride it out. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a good point with the uh, with the buyout rumor in that cap space. Uh, that's something I thought of that I was like, hey, you know, that's a million dollars they didn't spend. I think to your points, though, you know, obviously, it, yeah, buying low is certainly they are low right now. And but I do think they could get lower <laughs> in the terms of if they lose Eagle, they could be done. And I also mm-hmm. think that, you know, from a talent perspective, of course, they didn't lose the offseason. But from a disc-moving perspective, Simon is kind of un- unheralded in that regard other than maybe Paul McBeth. So I think that there's st- still to be seen if Eagle, just his success alone, you know, he's not really doing YouTube right now. You know, can they move plastic? Um, so I think there's a lot to be seen there, but I certainly don't think, you know, they are on the cheap right now. So it's certainly not a uh, unwise move to buy low. Uh, I, this last one, I think, is going to be tricky. Um, just a little points update right now. Dustin at 34, Robbie at 30, heading into our final topic of the rapid fire round. Um, buy, sell, or hold. We'll start with you, Dustin. Stock in Paige Pierce. All right, so it's a little too scary to buy, but I am going to hold. And that's because I don't think she had as bad of a year as people try to make it out to be. She still had a pretty good season when you look back last year. She won two majors. She had three other elite wins, and she had loads of top five finishes. She was simply just overshadowed by the record-breaking year from Tatar and other talent being on the rise. So my point being is that her stock is still pretty good. I think she's still probably around a top five player and has the skills still to get back into the top three. I think the pairing of the division can make it hard for anyone to stay number one for a long time. Um, and I think she still has goals to chase. I think that she still has things that she wants to do. She still wants to chase that major record, for example. So she still has that drive. But the reason why I'm holding and not buying is I am a little bit scared about some of the mixed messaging we've heard from her in her interviews because it seems like sometimes she's on and sometimes she doesn't care. And so that's where I'm a little bit scary about buying. Yeah, certainly. Robbie, what are you thinking? 
I am buying hardcore for the exact reason that Dustin mentioned, but it is actually a strength in her favor. With all the mixed messages we received last year, she still had an incredible year. And let's think about what all she had on her plate outside of disc golf. We saw a similar dip with other players when they were focused on external assets. She had the documentary she was focused on. She got engaged last year. She bought a house last year. There's so much that she was focused on to distract her from disc golf. And even when distracted, she was still the arguable player of the year, which means that this year she is going to absolutely have the talent and skill to do so last year was Paige Pierce focus on focusing on becoming an icon gaining that sixth title all of that I think this year with all the distractions out of the way her her personal life settled we see Paige Pierce the legend yeah I, I think that um first of all not arguable player of the year not yeah not, that's where I was not lost. player of the year <laughs> I I you're, you're signed with the PDGA a little bit too much on that one um I, I do I do think though you make a good point I think that another player that we saw that effect with was Drew Gibson last year um somebody who I I feel like you know starting a new disc company had a lot of other things going externally um and that and that had that effect where it's like yeah maybe they're a little distracted what I don't know if we have seen is a player pull out of that mindset necessarily like uh, we've seen some players that have gone into that and maybe never been back to their old self um but there's also a lot of other factors to consider there and then you have guys like simon who became a dad and then just won five times and had the best season of their career so four it, times. It, yeah four times it goes it goes both ways um i gotta give myself a minus point for that <laughs> uh, it, go, it goes both ways but at the end of the rapid fire round dustin 37, Robbie, 33. Dustin is yet again our champion, our first two-time champ. Congratulations, Dustin. Anything to say for your victory lap today? Yeah, why don't you go up ahead, pull that two box up with me and Hunter real quick if you can. Oh, boy. All right. Dragging Hunter Here back into the call. <laughs> or you could go back to a four shot. It's fine. It's as long as I can see Hunter. No, he's, he'll, he'll get it for you. Into his eyes. I need to look deep into this man. Oh, he's hiding. Really <laughs> he's hiding. Look at me. Look at me, all right? You called me out last week. Be careful what you wish for, buddy. When you come for the king, you best not miss. Because, look, this might be your channel, but this show's my house. All right? Oh, my So God. why don't you go work on yourself a little bit. <laughs> Save those shoulder excuses for your horrible putting performance in your next oh monthly match. And uh, leave me alone. All right? So oh outside of that, outside of that, right, somebody... much love to Brody. Holy... Much love to Trevor. Much love to my man, Robbie C. Great, great. My fellow Alabamian. Get to do it up in the, in the, uh, the rapid fire at the end. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a roll tider, but, you know, oh, I respect wow. it. Uh, but yeah, man, uh, just uh, love being on the show, and thanks to all the fans out there. All right, Hunter is gonna have to think about some things after that one. Um, thanks everybody to watching uh, today's episode. Let us know always uh, any feedback you have in the comments, uh, and if you see this show and you're thinking, "Hey, I could do that. I could go out there and, and take on Dustin. Maybe I could be the champ." Um, if you if you think you have if you think you have what it takes, make sure to reach out to us in any way you can find through email, social media, and we'd love to have you on for an audition and see if maybe this is something you could do. Other than that, though, that's all we've got. We'll see you next week with another episode.